Hi everyone, this is Alicia Halliday and this is the ASF Weekly Science Podcast. I post links to the articles discussed on this podcast as well as other relevant or helpful links on the summary page at asfpodcast.org. Recently, the autism community was saddened and stunned to hear that Tristram Smith, a researcher at the University of Rochester, had passed away. I only met him a couple of times, but remarkably, I've read so many wonderful things about him online that have been said by people that didn't even know him. I'm so incredibly touched and honored that one of his mentees and his wife also agreed to contribute to this podcast. I think one of the most impactful roles you can have as an academic researcher is your role in mentoring students so they can go on and develop and test even more sophisticated interventions in the years to come. In fact, one of his former students, who is now an investigator in her own right, Susanna Ayatarola, sent me some memories of Dr. Smith. I'm honored to be talking about Tris today, a dedicated researcher and mentor who worked his brilliance in quiet and thoughtful ways. In reflecting on his influential career, we all recognize that his work had enormous impact on our understanding of ASD and ASD treatment, and it provided guidance, hope, and a plan for families. But it speaks to the person behind the innovation that Tris's research was not guided by curiosity or knowledge for knowledge's sake, but rather it was born out of a genuine desire to improve outcomes for individuals and families. For those of us who are fortunate to learn from him, Tris was a true mentor in every sense of the word, always seeing the best in everyone and wanting to help people be excellent doing the things they really wanted to do. With his trademark humility and humorous self-deprecation, Tris was always approachable even to us as students and early career trainees. He honestly believed that he was learning just as much from you as you were learning from him, even when you knew that wasn't really true. But that's just how he made everyone feel. Because of this approachability, he often imparted immense wisdom and guidance without its impact even being immediately apparent. Tris wasn't a person to make large sweeping gestures, and so maybe it's fitting that when thinking back on his mentorship and friendship, it's the small moments that come to mind. How he responded to every single email, even to say great or thank you, how he gave thoughtful and insightful feedback on our written work, even when he was in the middle of a grant deadline. His knack for being hilariously deadpan in email and how he'd bust out with an inside joke at the most unexpected times. How he entered into an in-kind research collaboration with another team, just to help me get connected with them because they were doing the work that he knew I wanted to do. How he shared or even gave away credit with trainees and early career faculty, and I think he actually believed that we contributed as much as he perceived we did. How he remembered and asked about our birthdays, and eventually our kids' birthdays. How he presented opportunities as an ask rather than a mandate. How he didn't really expect anything back. We are all holding this personal as well as professional loss, and I know that we will all carry these small moments with us as we do our best to uphold his legacy. In the two times I met him, he always made everyone feel at ease. He listened intently to everything everyone said, even at the end of a long day. He also always came back to the impact the science was going to have on families, and it didn't matter who you were. He spent as much time talking to you and listening to you as if he were the head of the funding agency that funded his research down to a junior student that he had never met before. He began his career in autism in the 1990s after he received a PhD from the University of California. He led some of the very early efforts in the 1990s to look at the effectiveness of interventions used for autism, especially longer-term outcomes. 
One paper, the seminal first publication on the efficacy of early intervention, published in 1993, and two other research papers of his published in the 1990s, are still used as standards by advocacy groups as evidence that behavioral interventions are effective and should be covered under insurance plans. While his focus was more on early behavioral interventions, he became an expert in designing interventions for autism across multiple domains and across the lifespan, including pharmacological treatments as an add-on to other behavioral interventions. He had a soft spot, I think, for parent-delivered interventions, or parent training, the ones where parents deliver in their home so that toddlers or children receive the maximum number of intervention hours in a variety of settings. In the last few years, he wasn't as focused on whether or not they worked yes or no, but why they worked in some people and didn't work in others. He didn't just study interventions, he improved them and refined them. And after all, what couldn't use any improvement? In 2000s, he became one of the few researchers at the time, in the US at least, using a randomized design to understand if early intervention made lasting effects on kids with autism on not just things like scientific instruments measuring constructs, but things like entering mainstream kindergarten. The goal of his research was not just to understand kids with autism, but provide an evidence base so clinicians knew what worked and didn't work, and didn't just willy-nilly, as my father would say, throw different interventions at kids and families without any particular evidence base. He worked tirelessly with families and in the last decade or so used a tool called a systematic review to better understand the evidence base. Systematic reviews are a lot of work. It consists of gathering, summarizing, organizing, evaluating, and applying various criteria to the scientific literature to evaluate its impact. It's more than just putting it together though, it's it's looking critically to evaluate the overall message it sends and the strength of that message. As I mentioned earlier, he started publishing his work in the last decade on parent training models. Knowing that kids have limited time with clinicians, what could parents be taught to deliver in the home? Now this was a pretty big bet. Parent-delivered interventions and parent training have a high probability of failure. All sorts of things can happen. Parents are busy. They can't possibly be expected to be as rigorous as clinicians who don't have groceries to buy, have other jobs, and have other kids to take care of. But in his presentations, he always made sure that scientific evidence prevailed, and that if parent training was not successful, it was never the parent's fault. He kept revising, improving, and tinkering with these parent trainings so that they had the highest probability of success, and then used rigorous methods to see if it worked. He also knew things like parental stress had a huge impact on parent training, and he studied that as well in order to help families with autism. As I mentioned, while his early focus was primarily behavioral interventions, he recognized that medications should and could be used in certain situations. Keeping in mind parent concern about the use of medications in children, he added parent training of behavioral interventions to determine if medication doses could be lowered. He was just a part of a bigger team on those studies, but he was a very critical part. In addition to showing what worked, he was also careful to help design studies that would illustrate if it didn't work as well. He worked closely with Susan Hyman, also at the University of Rochester, to examine the gluten-free casein-free diet. Now, many parents were making drastic changes to their family's diet on anecdotal reports of parents. He used rigorous science to show that while the diet didn't seem to be harmful, it actually didn't seem to help core autism symptoms either. 
I wanted to take a couple of the more recent studies he published, including those that he led, to give you some examples about how he's contributed to not just understanding autism, but how autism should be treated and how we should be studying autism treatments to make sure clinicians are giving the best advice they can. He was a champion of early intervention, but he also understood that you can't look at early intervention delivered just in a clinic setting. Most intervention should be delivered in communities. I mean, really, where do most people get early intervention? It's delivered by community providers. So in a recent, as in very recent, a few weeks ago study, he showed that kids three years out from an early intervention, those who received community-based intervention, showed increases in IQ or cognitive ability and were able to be mainstreamed into school with a full-time aid. In other words, this mainstream school is a less restrictive environment. They also had better communication skills compared to those who did not receive early intervention. Those that got early intervention very early didn't differ from those who got early intervention later, which is a big comfort for families who don't always assume that they've identified autism as early as they could. His research dedication was not limited to just those who were diagnosed early, however. I already mentioned how he used systematic reviews to approach strength of the evidence, if there was any evidence to rate at all. And that includes the evidence that if something worked, didn't work, or was more needed to study. His work had impact on families of all ages. For example, another recent systematic review examined strategies for transitioning, what worked, what didn't work, and what needs to be further studied. He and his collaborators found that children with autism struggled with anxiety, increased social pressure, and that their parents felt overwhelmed with the complex placement and decisions and worried about the well-being of their children. Furthermore, teachers strove to provide appropriate supports to their students with autism, often with inadequate resources. The most useful strategies involved helping the student adjust to a new setting, looking at individual differences in transition needs, clarifying the transition process for parents, and fostering communications between the school and home. Now, parents hearing this and whose kids have been transitioning probably are thinking, uh, duh, but these strategies that have been identified by thorough examination of the literature are hopefully now being incorporated. As I mentioned, they include lessons for parents, teachers, and school personnel. Finally, recently, again, just this year, he used his extensive knowledge of parent training for issues around feeding and diet. He showed that early feasibility and approval by parents of a parent-delivered intervention on feeding and nutrition issues. Part of the tragedy of his passing he is that he will not be part of the follow-up studies to look at the efficacy of these interventions, and we hope these studies will continue without him. He was a pioneer in autism research and someone that was helping families when help was hard to find decades ago and who changed the face of how interventions were studied. He really will be missed. I just knew that he was not just an amazing scientist, but an amazing person too. And his wife, Jennifer Katz, shares a particular memory she had about how he worked with the autism community. It really shows how he really thought out of the box when helping people on the spectrum. I want to thank his sister, Lisa, and his wife, Jennifer, for helping me with this podcast and leave you with this memory from Jennifer. It seems pretty well known that Tris was passionate about helping children and families in need. He was also a highly ethical, conscientious man who followed all the rules, dotted every I, and crossed every T. He didn't tell me much about his direct contact work with children and families, and my sense is that this is because of how invested he was in respecting everyone's privacy. One exception stands out in my mind. 
One day early in our marriage, he came home and told me how proud he was of a client who'd been caught shoplifting. I was mystified. As mentioned, Tris was a highly ethical, conscientious man who followed all the rules, and stealing definitely seems to violate rules. When I asked him why this made him so proud and happy, he explained more. This child had been diagnosed with autism. She was in treatment. She was caught stealing a bottle of pink lotion, which she had been holding against her pink dress, in an apparent attempt to decrease the likelihood of being detected. Tris grinned from ear to ear, explaining that this attempt at deception was evidence for a major breakthrough. The child, he explained, was able to think about how other people were going to interpret her behavior, and she modified her behavior based on these thoughts. I'd never seen him so thrilled.